Okay, today's guest is a career education and athlete transition expert with an impressive background in elite level coaching through teams such as Fiji in the Rugby World Cup and the Waratahs in the Super Rugby. He grew up with incredible talent for union before having a premature retirement due to injury and has gone on to create businesses and pathways for athletes and others to find opportunities in the workplace and develop their personal skills. He's an inspirational man with a whole heap of knowledge. I'm so excited to have a chat with him today. Now, I was always told to be kind to mum, so I'm going to do my best here. It's Mr. Greg Mum. Welcome, mate. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. It sounds like I've done a bit by that introduction, which is always good, but um, no pleasure to be here. That's good. And a farmer now as well to add to the resume, mate. That's where you are now. You look the part, as I was saying. Yeah, it's uh, it was something that uh, we'd kind of been, I almost did when I was 20, funnily enough, and got <laughs> convinced not to go farming. And then that's where my... Um, Rugby career took off. I'd been ruled out of footy and lost my way a little bit. Dropped out of uni. I was actually working on a farm out in uh, Trangy. And um, from there, got a development officer job with New South Wales Rugby in the bush and thought, well, it's half rugby, half farming or half the city. So that's where it all started, actually. Well, well, the farming goes back to your grandfather, wasn't it, Bill Mum? So he was... Wasn't he a sawyer? And he, he's got a, a record or something for the double saw or something like that, doesn't he? Yeah, he did do. So he was he owned a sawmill um, you know, on the west coast of the South Island. So yeah. um, in a little region, or his town's called Knockawar, but the region's called Buller. Um, and he um, is still the last All Black to come out of that region in yeah. New Zealand. And then uh, post-rugby competed on the um, wood chopping and sawing circuit. And held a, a world record on the double saw, I think, for about eighteen years. Um, so yeah, so these you don't go to that part of New Zealand without um, stories about him, Dean, and I, and, and everyone yeah. else kind of piles in significance to build on uh, in that area. <laughs> That's right. So you got the only the one game for the All Blacks because he obviously I think he got a shoulder injury or something. He got he got injured. Yeah, he missed did out you, on the next tour. Yeah, did you did you grow up supporting the All Blacks or the Wallabies? Uh, I did with the All Blacks because. Yeah. Um, when I was born here, but we went back to New Zealand pretty yeah. much straight away for four years. So up until five, I kind of lived in New Zealand and kind of grew up with that heritage. Mm. But uh, Dean was actually born in New Zealand. But then when we came back, he yeah. you know, basically from six month old was here. So, um, yeah, I remember tears in the family room where four out of the five of us were going for the All Blacks and Dean <laughs> was going for the Wallabies and couldn't work out what was wrong with him. So, yeah, well, you grew up with a dream of playing well for the Wallabies or playing rugby at the highest level. Dean went on and, and did. Unfortunately, you got injured. But was it always your your dream, even from from a young boy? Was it always like that's what all I want to do? I want to play rugby, or was there other pathways you thought about? Yeah, no, sport was always big. I, I don't know whether I always grew up. Uh, wanting to play rugby, you know, it's more just kind of the family pastime. So, but definitely, you know, when you get to that 15, 16 age group and it all starts to to make sense, then that was definitely an aspiration of mine. And, um, you know, I got ruled out, oh, nothing to do with rugby. I broke my knee skiing in, in New Zealand actually, was which was the start of the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just didn't hold up over the next kind of four or five years. Um, but... Yeah, that was just when the game was going professional. So um, it was the first time that rugby was really a career path for a lot of people. Um, and we were that, you know, mates of mine were going through and doing it. So it was definitely something that I was aspiring to at the time that I was ruled out. Mm, you seem like a real calm, collected guy now. What were you like on, on the rugby field? 
Uh, a little bit the same. Yeah. Um, I didn't really have, uh, I guess, the, the speed that Dean did. Dean was you yeah. know, a very, very good athlete, but um, I'd played 5'8 and centre coming through and number eight and was always aspiring to kind of the Zinze and Brook kind of style of athletes. So kick goals. So you used to kind of do a few things. And, um, yeah, I was... Without the athleticism, I liked whacking people because that yep. was more my forte than, than running around them. So I enjoyed that, but it was more the whole game that I was into. So Yeah. But you had to obviously hang up the boots at 20. How do you deal with that from a, from a mental state? I know you said you went through it was a bit, it was a bit difficult at the time, but you probably didn't realise just, just how bad it was in terms of, I don't know what you want to call it, but mental health issues. Yeah, you know, in, in hindsight and, and, and having done some training around mental first aid and, and some, I guess, charitable causes around mental health now, it probably was. And I just mm. didn't know it because no one ever spoke about it in those times. So, you know, realistically, when you're young, you, you tend to just kind of do it. Well, I did it through um, becoming the best bloke at going out, you know, it was so you can yeah. party the most, stay out the longest, um, you know, and then luckily – you know, I got into coaching and coaching kind of just gave me that grounding that sport does and, and got me through it. But, um, yeah, it's difficult. You know, we interviewed a lot of athletes when we finished and, um, you know, a lot of them just said because it wasn't something that people spoke about, you thought there was something wrong with you because mm-hmm. no one else spoke about it being difficult or being yeah. hard getting out of sport. And it was only when... I guess you had the realisation that other people went through similar stuff that you were like, oh, okay, well, this is just a normal pathway. Um, and then you start to get used to it. But that, that I guess, I kind of went through it twice, um, didn't learn my lesson as a player mm. um, and then left coaching. And the coaching step was, you know, a lot better, um, a bit older, a bit wiser, but still um, tried a few careers, um, thought that education would get me through it, mm-hmm. um, but hadn't necessarily worked out who I was outside of rugby still. I just changed the hat from player to coach without necessarily doing the work on the rest of me. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's not easy. And I think most people uh, who have gone through it realise in hindsight that it's probably a little harder than they give it credit for. Yeah, people. Not a lot of people think about that. A few um, past players that I've spoken to as well. They said that was the, the most difficult thing because you you got all this attention when you're playing sport and and you're going through it and you think that your whole world revolves around that sport and doing what you can. Then all of a sudden you feel like you're starting life again. Mm. And like you said, you I think you interviewed was it Shane Webke you interviewed and he said no one told me that it's going to be hard. So when it gets, when it's hard, you think there's something wrong with you. So like yeah. every every player goes through that at some stage, surely. Yeah, 100%. And I think it just really depends how much of their identity is tied up in that sporting persona. Yeah. Um, you know, if if they live and breathe that and they don't necessarily have a broader range of friends or a broader range of interests or, um, you know, some other skills, then, yeah, it, it, that tends to be the kind of the athlete that struggles the most. Mm. Um, whereas the ones that develop other interests, other skills, other networks. Uh, it's tough, but they tend to have a little bit better go at it. And one thing I think athletes forget is it took them, you know, 10 or 15 years of really small improvements to get to the top of their athletic career. Um, but because they finished competing as the world's best or in mm. you know, national or international comps, 
they just expect to be able to start their career at, at that level again without yeah. realizing that no, it's probably going to take me five to ten years to actually get to that high level of competition, and I'm just going to suck at something for a few years until I until I learn how to do it. Yeah, but in saying that, there's a heap of skills that you get from playing professional sport, isn't there? Like, what are some of the kind of things you can bring into the, like the business world? Is it like you know conflict resolution or uh, resilience, yeah. that sort of thing? Like, what type of skills can you bring in? Yeah, the, the, the kind of the big framework that's been bandied around in the career space for the last five years is um, you know the kind of top twenty skills for the future that the mm-hmm. World Economic Forum brought out. So athletes really line up well with. Um, you know, teamwork or collaboration, communication skills is big, um, working under pressure, coachability. So they're all soft skills that athletes have got. You know, what they miss is the hard skills um, and they just miss the vocabulary and the experience. So, you know, you put them in a team environment, they'll go great, but they just might not know what people are talking about or they don't know how to actually enter something or do a proposal or whatever else. Yeah. So if we can kind of manage them through that initial learning of the hard skills, whether it's, you know, actual qualifications or on-job learning, then the soft skills get a chance to really start to, you know, show their capability. And it's a really a big thing. You know, we always used to speak about, you know, form, talent, fit, um, and, you know, forms what you've done. And obviously as an athlete, you haven't done anything in that next industry, so that doesn't really count. But talent, yeah, you've got really good talent in terms of your skills, um, but you need to understand why you fit that company or why you fit that industry. And that's where a lot of athletes don't understand where they fit and why. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, one, they might choose the wrong career, or two, when they go to an interview process or they start a job, they don't know how to actually exemplify their value to that company because they don't know what they can bring to that team to make that company or industry better. So there's a bit of work there, but, you know, that's where the self-awareness part and and understanding Mm -hmm. what they like doing and why um, kind of helps that equation. Yeah, the systems that are in place while you're playing, which is some of the things you do as well, you help the transition, but how many players actually think about it? Because I I think you said that you thought about it a little bit because your dad was a mentor and he kind of told you that, you know, you've got to set up life after after sport, that sort of thing, or have optioned. But how many people actually think about it during their playing career to say, oh, God, I've got to think about what I'm doing after, you know, rather than just concentrating on what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, unfortunately not many. And, and mm. the majority of the sports, you know, we've, we've done work internationally um, in both, you know, rugby, team sports, soccer, Olympic sports, Um up until very recently, the majority of the sports, if they were doing anything, it was just helping you get a qualification. So it was like a course like, or something like, yeah. Yeah. It was either, you know, Rugby Australia paid for part of your university fees okay. or it would be an introduction to universities and they'd give you a scholarship or, um, but it wasn't really. And what we found with a lot of athletes was, they would bank their transition on having a qualification, but mm. depending on what they got. So if you could just did a Bachelor of Commerce or a Bachelor of Arts, you know, that could line up with any one of, you know, 30 or 40 career paths. Yeah. So, um, yes, it's great, but it doesn't necessarily help you understand where you're going and why. It's mm. just part of the solution. Um, and a lot of athletes just kind of 
do the qualification bank it and then they're like I'll worry about everything else when I finish yeah um but um Liz Ellis was really good we spoke to her and you know she she had a knee injury I think a couple of years before she retired and that got her really realizing the physiological and psychological challenges of not doing anything for a year so what happens to your body when you don't have all the hormones generated by 14 to 20 hours of exercise a week? You know, um, what happens when you have all this time and you have nothing to do with it? Um, you know, what happens when the money stops? So, you know, we always, there's kind of five parts to it. Uh, physicals first, because that's the thing that, that stops straight away. Like if you no longer have a contract and you decide not to go to the gym, you pretty much lose a massive hit of, hormones straight away and that's where mm. a lot of the high risk behavior comes from trying to chase the dopamines and that that you get from exercise um then you know then there's the um financial if, you, if you're not getting paid um then you've got the career obviously then it can affect relationships because for a lot of partners um if they're not a professional athlete as well they've supported that athletic life for maybe a decade um, and sometimes played second fiddle to the athlete, and now they want a little bit of time back and a little bit of attention. But if yeah. the athlete's struggling, you know, unfortunately they have to support that athlete again. So, yeah, there's a lot to it that I think people don't necessarily think over and beyond just getting a qualification. Yeah. I'm going to ask you about your coaching in a second, but I wanted to, I really want to know about your, your mates. So how important are your mates, especially when you finish? Because I was interested in hearing you speak about when, when you finished as a player, you were hanging out with the guys who were involved in sports and that sort of stuff, but you felt like a third wheel, like, I'm, you know, they're out playing, I'm not. I don't feel like I belong. Then you go on the other side where you get attention from these other blokes, but they're kind of not the right crowd to hang out with. How important are the people you, you surround yourself with? Yeah, massively. Um, you know, I think what's that saying? You're the sum of the, the 10 people you hang around with or something. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, I think that's the great thing about sport. Whatever the level of involvement you have, um, generally you're around people that value positive connection, physical activity, community. Mm. Um, and, and when you fall out of that, you know, you can just end up with people who perhaps are looking to attach them some, some, themselves to someone that's been more successful. So yeah, yeah, yeah. in your eyes, sorry, in their eyes, maybe you're a little bit more successful than they've been. And so they're more than happy to give you some attention and stroke mm. your ego and whatever else. But perhaps they're not the the people that are, I guess, have the discipline or the habits that you're used to or that you kind of get some satisfaction out of. So, you know, that's part of the reason we advise athletes, you know, when you do finish, make sure you stay involved with this sport in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, can just be as a commentator, fan, coach, administrator. Um, but we have seen athletes that have gone, no, I'm going to go cold turkey on sport and I'm going to throw all my energy into my career. Um, but then they lose all of that social capital and support network that they built up through the relationships. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's pretty important. They don't have to be from sport, obviously. Yeah. You know, there's good people outside of sport, but you've just got to be conscious of who you're spending time with and why. Mm. 
you spent a bit of time with the Fiji boys, especially when you went over for the World Cup. And 2007, hey, that was pretty good, actually, 2007. You made the quarterfinals. You lost to South Africa, but that's all right. 2011, not as good, but, you know, you beat Namibia. That's fine. So what was what was the highlight? Well, enough to get us excited. Exactly. There you go. So what was the highlight of uh, kind of your coaching? Because you, you did some coaching with the Waratahs as well. You've coached your brother. So mm-hmm. as a highlight for your coaching, what what is it? Oh, I think... You know, funnily enough, at, at the time, I think it was around, you know, working with the people to a common goal. Mm. Um, you know, in, in hindsight, and I think probably one of the reasons I was happy to step away from it, it was just being around that group, um, mm. you know, and it was only when I was, I guess, old enough and comfortable enough to to not need all of the support of those people that I um, was, you know, happy stepping away from it. But, you know, different things, you know, when you're working with a team of people who are highly motivated, um, you know, all very happy, you know, sport, particularly professional sport, gives you a lot of your core needs. So, like, most people are there are very fulfilled. They're very energised, happy people because the sport is actually, you know, giving them a lot of what they need in life. So it's a really positive vibe. Um, And when you throw on top of that Fijian spirit, um, you know, that was fantastic. And yeah. one of the things um, that I'll f- never forget out of Fiji is just, you know, being a, a white boy from private school in Sydney, um, realising how happy they were with not much and just with people's yeah. company and everything else. So um, that was something I really took for them. And, and, you know, looking, you know, one of the other things that I learned there is um, just the power of values. like. In that 2-7 World Cup, there was a lot of things that were important to Fiji and to those players lining up. So they had some political issues at home. Okay. Um, you know, they linked that motivation around wanting to do things for their family with their sporting motivation and with their um, values around religion. So we had one of our assistant coaches was a um, reverend mm-hmm. and it was just intertwined really well. I saw the power of values when they were brought together to a common goal. Um, and I guess... You know, the Tars coaching Dean, just being able to, I guess, one, um, beat him to the international stage age-wise was good because um, I, I got there slightly ahead of him with yeah. Fiji. But um, it gives me some bragging rights in the family. But, um, no, it was just nice, I guess. I, I was lucky enough to have him at five times in different teams coming through. Mm. Um, Dad coached both of us when we were younger, so then to be able to coach Dean and um, – to now see Dean coaching his son down at North Pirates is um is a pretty nice little loop. Did he always listen to you or was there some conflict there? No, he was pretty good. There was once in the under-16s where I remember he, he threw an open hand at me <laughs> over some of his mates and we had to have a short discussion around that. But, yeah. um, no, I think we got on pretty well. So. Yeah, nice. What about your kids? Are they interested in rugby, your kids? Yeah, they are. So yeah. um, my daughter plays soccer at the moment. They're only six and four, but yeah. um, Eddie is not going to be good at soccer because he dives on the ball and tackles everyone. <laughs> so we're just waiting until he's old enough to play and then he'll start. So Yeah, yeah, nice. You, you go on to, to start up your, your businesses. You're at the fi- you had the final whistle, um, your director at Career HQ, um, the Athlete Advantage. So what um, kind of – because your dad's involved in, in a bit as well. Was it always your choice to go into it? Did your dad kind of guide you into that? No, it kind of came about organically. Um, like I said, when I left coaching, 
I kind of uh, committed the same transition error twice in, yeah. in the sense that I hadn't really thought about what my next step was going to be. I'd done some qualifications and I just kind of assumed I'd go into teaching because that was like coaching. Mm. And so I did teach for six months at my old school, taught English, thought I was going to be Robin Williams in Dead Poets Society <laughs> and realized that it wasn't all Shakespeare and, and yeah, yeah. standing on desks. So, um, no, I, f- I fell out of that within six months and Dad was just leaving the corporate world at the same time. Mm. And uh, he was talking about writing a book and I was, we were just talking about different athletes having issues and some had gone and seen him for advice that we yep. knew. And I just said to him, well, no one's going to read your book, mate, because people don't, you know, kids don't necessarily read books these days. It'll be websites <laughs> or whatever else. And yeah, so yeah. he was like, well, why don't you, we do something together? And that's pretty much how it started. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so the Career HQ business is predominantly in high schools. It's an online career development tool. And then that started the, the athlete transition thing of which we've built out a whole number of different arms um, mm-hmm. and cognizant of the fact that our skill set was more around career transition, but a lot of the transition issues with athletes is mental. We then uh, partnered with another company called Crossing the Line Sport um, and together that that kind of offering morphed into the athlete advantage. Yeah, nice. I, I love when you talk about you've got to find what you love, you know, and what, what your values are, like not what's important to your family and that sort of thing, like actually to yourself because I reckon a lot of people don't think that deeply about it and that's probably where some of the problems come. But how would you, how do you do that? So the first step, if someone asks you, comes to you and says, mate, how do I find out what I love, what I'm good at, what's the first step? We'll be back after a quick break. Yeah, we did a bit of work in this and it's something I'm passionate about because I think sport, for all the good that sport does, we tend to tell people what they need to value in order to fit into the sport. Yeah. So, you know, um, and we did a lot of work on it at TARS when I was there, which was great, but I remember um, a few guys really, it didn't fit with them because yeah. you know, we had 20 six guys out of 35 saying, yeah, we value this. And the other eight are like, well, I don't actually value yeah, that. Like, okay, I can't. Yeah. I can't buy into that. Probably same as a lot of companies. But um, I did some work with a guy called John Demartini, who's kind of a massive values guy. Um, and he's just got 13 questions and, and it's all along this, the kind of vein that if you can't see it in your life, you don't value it. So it's literally where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your time? What do you read? What do you get excited talking to other people about? Um, and the example we always use is like you might say that you value health and fitness, but if yep. you don't go to the gym and you eat crap, then you don't you actually don't. value it. Mm. You just like the idea of it. So, you know, for me, it's all about your own life. Like if your own life isn't telling you that something's important, then you don't value it. So mm. no matter what fancy word you can pull off a corporate foyer, um, 
unless you can actually articulate where it's in your life and how you're committing to it, then it's not a value. Yeah. What are some of your values? Uh, going through mine, you know, what's come out really big is um, family, um, which is part of the decision to come fam- farming. So yep. after spending some time at COVID last at home last year with COVID, so I was travelling three, four days a week. Yep. Which is to be here more. Um, uh, ongoing learning, so just always learning um, is a big one. And then um, just freedom, financial freedom kind of, but more freedom in general, freedom to run my own businesses, run my own timeline, um, do the things I want, whether they're career-based or, or outside of career. Mm, I love that. I always thought about this, you know, like as a coach, you go into a new, say you go into a new club and you want to um, create values that the team respects or something like that. What's the best process? Cause you said then, you know, the Tars were telling the guys, these are the things we respect. And then some blokes don't uh, agree with that. Do you, do you kind of put it back on them and say, what do you want our values to be? Or what's the kind of process in, in doing that and finding like shaping a culture at a club? Yeah. Well, the way I haven't been involved with it probably for, uh, five or six years but the way it used to be done was you get in small groups you'd all come up with words that okay. the group valued and then the small groups would come together and then you'd workshop it and you'd end up with the three or four that the group generally agreed with mm. the problem with that is if it if that value didn't resonate with an individual then you weren't necessarily going to have the intrinsic motivation towards that value yeah um the the work I did on values with um, Dr. John, Don, John Demartini was big around even if you have a, a value that doesn't necessarily resonate, um, you can internalise it by just understanding your own values. So if I understand freedom but then I want to work for an organisation that wants to tell me what to do, mm. then it's um, understanding or, or trying to see how does me, if I do what they want, how does that fulfill my value of freedom? Now, it may not be immediately. It may be, well, I need to do this for six months and then that will give me the options to do X, Y, Z. Or if I do that, then I get money, which then gives me freedom to do these other things. But you just have to help, one, people understand what their own values are, and then, two, help them link their values to the value of the organisation so that you find a sweet spot in the middle where you're both getting something out of it, Mm -hmm. the team's getting some of your intrinsic motivation and commitment and you're getting an understanding of how doing the team's thing actually helps you and your, your own personal values. Yeah. I love that. I want, I want to ask you, Greg, do you, do you think that if you didn't get injured so early that you would have uh, made this discovery about yourself? Like, do you believe that things happen uh, for a reason or, you know, how do you look at it like that? Yeah. I've got much better than, uh, that sort of stuff in my um, Zen older state, yeah. but um, no, I'm pretty much that way inclined at the moment with yeah. most things. So, like you said, most people seem to think I'm fairly calm. I, f- I figured, I guess, that the injuries when I was younger taught me that you can't really do anything about those things anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've learned a lot from Dean actually, and his wife Sarah, who had a really uh, tough run with um, premature births. Uh, and so they've set up a charity called Born Foundation in Australia, raising funds for that. But it, it's really around the only thing you can control is is your response and, and how you choose to interpret it. So yep. having those injuries when I was younger, you know, 
probably raged against them for a while and then sooner or later realized that, well, the story wasn't really helping me move to where I wanted to be. So you've just got to accept it. And as soon as you accept it, then you start to see those, those silver linings. So as soon as you realize that, well, that's just what happened and I can choose to move forward or, or not, as soon as you choose to move forward, then you see, oh, well, that led to this and this led to that. And then I wouldn't have had that experience. Yeah, yeah. Without this. And, and once you get those few aha moments, then the next time something bad happens, you can kind of lean into it a little bit more and be like, it's not what I want, but there'll be something that comes out of this that's of value or that's, that's enjoyable. Was there a moment when you was after you were saying you um you know used to go out all the time clubbing or whatever drinking and that sort of thing? Was there a moment where you realised you had like an aha moment where you're like oh I can't be doing this or was it a gradual thing? Do you, do you look back um, on and remember something? Yeah, it was a bit of a gradual thing. Like I definitely you know the more success I had with coaching, the more I guess um it was just a priority. It was more important for yeah. me to be better, better for work than it yep. was to go out on the weekend. But, mm-hmm. but then I guess the, the real aha was when I finally got um, married and was you know, settling down and having kids and just realising, well, I want to be a, a better person than I am and I want to be a better husband and father. And, and that was kind of probably the clincher. I still um, still enjoy the odd night out. But, <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just it, it was gradual. I think the, the hard bit around that is, for a while, I beat myself up that it had to be straight away. So like, okay, yeah, you, know, you, you go, okay, now I'm going to be an angel, and then you wouldn't be an angel, and you beat yourself up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Self up, then you go out again. So I think taking the pressure off ourselves, whether it's going out or dieting or exercise or reading or whatever it else, a lot of people see things in black and white. Um, and being okay with them being shades of grey is kind of a lot easier to manage and gets you moving forward. It's that kind of progress, not perfection mindset. Mm-hmm. I love it. Hey, tell me about a day in union. So it's on Saturday the 26th of March uh, next year and it's about coming together and celebrating everything you love about rugby, that sort of thing. You're a big uh, driver for this. Tell me about that and how people can get involved. Yeah, well, it's, it's a, a really simple idea, which is what I love about it so much, you know, after um the last couple of years before my um kind of farm tree change transition, I helped run the Positive Rugby Foundation. It's around raising grassroots uh, money for grassroots rugby. And, and what shocked me was I think at that stage there's 158 rugby foundations in Australia. There was um, you know, 300 and something clubs in New South Wales alone. Um, then you've got rep teams, then you've got state teams, then you've yep. got national teams. Um, and the game had all of these fantastic stories, but then the general consensus was that rugby wasn't in a good position. But the more we spoke, the the more further apart we got. So it, it's some of the great people I met in that time, um, we've just kept talking and, and yep. some people down from Melbourne and the Rugby Club Foundation. Um, and uh, sorry, the Rugby Club Foundation in Sydney and the Rugby Club in Melbourne. And we just thought, well, why don't we just see if we can do something simple one day a year where every rugby fan, player, administrator, club, whatever, just actually binds together and says, well, rugby's about fun, it's about connection, it's mm. about friendship. We don't have to be around whether the Wallabies win or yep. 
you know, levies are going up or down. Let's just celebrate what's good about the game. So that's all we're doing. We're trying to get people together for one day, um, whether they physically meet up um, or whether they just meet up online or they share photos, just remember what's great about the game and, and why it's so successful globally and, and why people have such long associations with it in their lives and um, celebrate it and celebrate it through that hashtag day and union yep. and, um, and the activities that will be happening on the day. Yeah, awesome. So, the, yeah, so the thought is that rugby is not in a good position, but obviously it looks like it is. It just like everything's separated. No one really knows about. It. Is that is that what it is? Or yeah, well, I think just um, you know, rugby union until very recently has been a grassroots game, yeah. um, and you know, a lot of people's connection with rugby is their local club. It's a little bit different to AFL, where you know, AFL you're born as a Swans fan or a Geelong yep. fan, whereas in rugby, you know, you're born as a Dremoyne Junior or your, you know, your dad played for this school or with uh, this yeah, university. Yeah. Like it tends to be a much more grassroots, yep. grassroots association. Um, but when the game went professional, I think everyone thought that it was the success of the Waratahs or Wallabies that dictated rugby where, um, you know, those bonds are still really important to the game. Um, grassroots participation has been growing recently. Um, Wallabies haven't been winning as much as we'd like, nor the Waratahs, mm. but the the, the rest of the game is actually pretty strong and I think we just need to remember what's good about it. Globally, it could not be stronger. Yep. Um, Asia's um, really moving on. The UK is super strong. US is taking off. Um, we just got to remember that, that the game's about connection, camaraderie, fun. Um, it's not necessarily about, you know, whether the Wallabies are getting packed out stadiums. Yeah, well, they're getting smashed at the moment, aren't they, the Wallabies? I want to ask you yeah. about it. <laughs> it wasn't too good on the weekend. Well, they had a good run. They had a good run. <laughs> they did. They did. They had – was it five in a row they won? They, they they moved up in the rankings and then they've lost two in a row and everyone's panicking. Is it is it worth get, getting worried about or it's – ah, that's all right, we'll be fine? No, I think, you know, we've got a pretty young team, pretty young coaching staff. Yeah. Um, they're trying some new things with the different law variations around who can come back and who can't. So yeah. there's a few teething problems with them. but. You know, if you'd said at the start of last year that we'd win five on the trot, you know, beat France um, at in a three-test uh, series, beat the, the Springboks world champions twice in a row, um, be ranked third in the world, whereas I think we were down as low as seventh or eighth yeah. at one stage, you know, we'd be pretty happy. Um, they're not going to be happy with the end of the year, obviously. They would have liked to have been two from none over there rather than none from two. Mm-hmm. But um, I think culturally, Rennie and, and his team are doing some really good things. You know, I think everyone would be happy with the effort of the players, whereas that was being called into question not too long ago. Um, and so I think if the culture and the effort is right, then um, with a young team, the performances will probably come 2022, 23. So optimistic. Yeah, well, twenty three is what we're we're aiming for the the World Cup. But what about the ill discipline? Is that does that worry you at all over the last two games of having? No, no not really. So I think we we got that under wraps in the okay. in the South African games. Yep. It's just, again, ill discipline tends to be youthful exuberance. So or just combinations. So when you haven't got guys playing together, they just everyone tries a little bit harder because mm-hmm. they're not used to the guy inside or outside them. Yeah, I think um, obviously we've had some different guys in on the November tour that weren't here um, during the 
July, August series. So combinations of youth and, and um, spending more time together, I think they'll work themselves out. But um, good times, I think. Good I think times? That, well, they're just the people. You know, you look yep. at the Waratahs, Darren Coleman's in there now, um, spent a huge amount of time at Clubland. Um, Brad Thorne in Queensland's obviously still on board, done good things up there. Um, the Force have had a couple of good years. Brumbies have been consistent. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wallaby's coaching team seem to be co- um, you know, focusing on culture and you know improving effort and um, connection to what the jersey means and that sort of stuff. So I think overall we're finding our way again, um, which I think will come through maybe not in six months' time but in 18 months, two years' time, I think the game will be in a good position. Nice. Hey, do you have a favourite Wallabies moment of all time? Uh, yeah, I think probably more recent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Wales game in the 2015 World Cup where um, to no, um, yeah, through no help of Dean who got yellow carded, <laughs> we got um, a couple of guys yellow carded in, in the space of a few minutes and, yeah. and we were down to 13 men for eight minutes, I think, and we're just defending that try line. Benny McCallman held up. George North, I think, over the try line. There's a few other tries stopped. Uh, and that was the time when I just remember the whole country who'd been, you know, questioning rugby just kind of believed in the team again. Mm-hmm. And then from there on into that final, you know, the whole country was back behind the Wallabies. And yeah. that's the great thing about the Wallabies. Yes, when we're not going well, it's easy to put the boot in, but when we are, you know, we, we can really unite the country in, in a global game quite quickly. And, and that's why I'm optimistic because yep. um, we're, we're in the top five um, in the world, um, which is not too bad considering total playing numbers were pretty small and, you know, we share our talent with league and AFL. So I think we're still doing all right. Mm. What are your thoughts on the, on the Super Rugby? Obviously a few changes now in the, the Argentina uh, team is gone, South Africa gone, Japan gone, the Western Force are back in. What about this new setup? Are you optimistic about that? Do you think it's it's better to have like the two new teams from Fiji and Moana Pacific, the, the Samoa teams? Like how is it going to work? Are you are you optimistic about it? Yeah, I think it is. Um, you know, what talking to a lot of kind of rugby fans, they lost their way with Super Rugby when it was too many teams, too many time zones and, yeah. you know, half the games are in South Africa in the middle of the night and they didn't even know which teams they were playing with. Yeah, yeah. Um, so many different styles that weren't necessarily all entertaining. So I think the Pacific teams will bring in a, a lot of um, flair um, and, you know, more tries, slightly looser game style, which I think the fans enjoy more. Yep. Um, and then I think, you know, time zones align better. Align better. Mm-hmm. So I think from that point of view, it's a better product for the consumer. Um, and I think that'll create a little bit of traction in terms of regular viewership, you know, understanding the teams, understanding the players, all of which make watching a game of footy more enjoyable. Um, and then broader, you know, long-term strategic, I think you'll see the rugby world line up in vertical time zones, not horizontal. So yeah. I think it's good for the game. You know, America's will kind of run that way whether or not Argentina always stays with us or lines up with North America. Um, but the future of our game in, in kind of our geographic area is the Pacific and Asia. Mm-hmm. And I think the more we align ourselves with that rather than, um, you know, people that are 10 hours away on planes, 
uh, makes sense. Definitely. All right. Who's the team to look out for then? Who Who's your tip to take it uh, out? In the Super Rugby. Super Rugby. Because um, the fixtures just got released yet, yesterday as we record this. So the fixtures come out for starting Feb. I'm getting excited about it. There's also a magic round in uh, in Melbourne where Amy Park, it, it's yeah. played over the whole weekend. So I'm excited for that. But I want to know who, who who's your tip, who to look out for. Well, I reckon it's the Crusaders always, particularly with Robinson still coaching, uh, Robertson. So, and then um, I reckon the Tars will be the movers. I don't know whether they'll make finals, but okay. they'll go close just because DC is a, he's a good culture man. And he's yep. got some good records turning people around. The Drua will, yeah, Fiji will go right. I reckon they'll end up mid table, but. I reckon it'll be Reds and Reds and Queensland again. Reds and Queensland again. What about Sorry, Reds and Crusaders? What about the Rebels? Melbourne Rebels. What are they going to do? Uh, Nothing. No, they. Um, you know, I think they they need a bit of luck to go their way. So they've had some years in recent years where their form's been really good, mm. and then they just get got. I remember a season a couple of years ago where. They just had terrible weather, like for every game at home. But they they get these home games, and then it'd just be terrible weather. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think injuries play on them a little bit. So you need luck with injuries. Steal one or two games away from home, and win your home games, and and they'll be there and thereabouts. But I think confidence is the big thing for them. So mm. they need a season where they get some confidence, and then the year after that they'll strike. Yeah, I'd love them to bring some success and get in the papers at least. I mean, the lucky thing about when when Melbourne Storm came in is they had nearly immediate success. So they're into a couple of grand finals and everyone in Victoria kind of got on board and followed rugby. We need the Rebels to be up there to get Victoria around them and involved in the in the union. Yeah, exactly. Well, hopefully a World Cup will come and that'll yeah. really help. So, you know, your brother's you- pushing for that as well. So on Instagram is really pushing to get that uh, that World Cup here in in Australia. Yeah, Are you on board with that? He's yeah, 27, yeah. It's, um, the, the Yanks are going for it as well, but I yeah. don't after losing by 100 points to the um, All Blacks, hopefully <laughs> they realise they need a little bit longer to compete. But That's that's right. Um, no, yeah, there's a few things coming up that, that are really good. You know, there's a Lions tour as well. You know, I remember going down and, and watching a Lions game in, in um, Melbourne and sitting out on the bars on the Yarra and then walking to the stadium. It was just an amazing atmosphere. Yeah. You know, having all of the benefits of Melbourne with the sporting infrastructure around the city. You know, if we can get a Lions tour, a game in Melbourne, mm-hmm. you know, we can get a World Cup afterwards. Um, there's private equity that's being spoken about in rugby, which might allow us to get a few more players and distribute that wealth across the country. You know, I think there's enough there. Maybe not in the you know short term for Melbourne, but hopefully um, in the not too distant future, we can get the Rebels with a few wins as well. Yeah, for sure. And you'll come down to Melbourne. We'll go to a game together and, and have a beer. Hey, I've got uh, 10 quick questions for you with all my guests. I like to do them. So we've got some snappy ones here for you. Uh, what is your favourite food? Probably T-bones, considering yeah. I'm a beef farmer now. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love it. Uh, your favourite movie of all time? Uh, Braveheart. Braveheart. Good one. Yeah. Um, your favourite union player of all time? Uh, probably Zinzan Brook. Very yeah. nice. If you could coach any team in the world right now, who would it be? Ireland. Ireland? Yeah. yeah. Why is that? I just, think that? I just think they've done a lot right for a lot of years. Mm. And I reckon 
if they can just, like they knocked off the All Blacks on the weekend. Yeah, I saw that. If they could get a couple of big scalps between now and 2023, they might win the 2023 World Cup. Oh, there you go. Hey, what's the best book you've ever read? Maybe Good to Great. Good by, to Great. Uh, yeah, by um, Jim Williams. I'll check it out. Good to Great. Yeah. It's around um, what was the difference between the um, top 500 companies in the States, what was good in terms of long-term sustainable success. I like it. Uh, Jim which Collins if... it is, not Jim Williams. I think Jim Collins. Jim Collins is it? Okay. Yeah. Uh, your favourite quote? Uh, probably if it is to be, it's up to me. Good one. Uh, you got a free Sunday afternoon to yourself, by yourself. The kids are somewhere. You just, but what, what do you do? Probably hasn't happened in a while. No, it hasn't happened in a while. <laughs> I used to bump with the kids on Sunday afternoon. That's yeah. why I'm working. Um, probably read, to be honest. Oh, I yeah. Find, yeah, I find that um, I like to read, but if I try to read by the time I get in bed, I fall asleep. So yeah. Um, if I had nothing else to do apart from eating what I wanted to eat and not having people tell me that I hadn't presented it in the right way or <laughs> separated the carrots from the potato right oh. um, yeah just have a good feed and read sounds pretty boring <laughs> yeah that's alright that's good that's, that's, what, that's what I like to do as well I don't get time I'm the same as you by the time I get to bed I'll read like a few pages I'll be ready to go to sleep so if you can find time during the day the best yeah exactly what makes you angry? Uh, people who talk about stuff but don't do anything. So, mm. yeah, people who always point out what's wrong but not actually take any action to fix it. Yeah. There are a few people in your life like that? Uh, <laughs> oh, just at different times. There always yeah. are. Everyone can always be that way, I guess. Yeah. You know, to get those people out sooner rather than later or mm-hmm. in time with other people. Best travel destination? Probably... Slight family bias, but um, the uh, west coast of the South Island, New Zealand. Yeah. So yeah, it's not that uh, exotic, but um, lots of really good um, beaches, lots to do, not many people, really laid back. Nice. I've never been to New Zealand. Oh really? Yeah, I have to go. Yeah, it's good, and you're still you're still pretty close to like Queenstown and all those sorts of things if you want yeah. to spice it. Yeah. Brilliant. Last one. What is your favourite song, Greg? Uh, probably at the moment would be um, Oceans by John Butler. Oceans by John Butler. Yeah. yeah. Very nice. Those I love that. I love that playing over the top. Yeah, brilliant. All right. Hey, I can't thank you enough for coming on. So just tell people how they can get involved uh, with your work, what you're doing right now. Yeah, so Day and Union will be launching um, next week uh, mm-hmm. and there'll be a website, um, dayandunion.com, that people can follow and there'll be information there how to get involved. But um, otherwise, just keep an ear out for it in 2022 in March and, and get amongst some great rugby people or people who used to be involved with the game and, and share it online. Brilliant. And go the Melbourne Rebels. I can't thank you enough for coming on, mate. I really appreciate you. You're an inspiration and, and we really appreciate you telling your story, mate. Thank you. Pleasure. You're welcome.